Well, we're in a series of messages here at Grace called Speaking of Heaven. And we're talking about the afterlife and thinking about what life will be like when we breathe our last breath here on earth. Because it's not a matter of if, but when we die, right? And the when part, when it happens, is the part none of us knows, unless you're a guy by the name of George. Have you heard about George and Bill lately? I mean, I don't know if you've heard this story. Uh, George and Bill, they're, they, av- avid golfers, love to golf. They're out on the golf course a while back, and they were discussing, you know, what is, they're going to be golf in heaven one day. And they couldn't seem to come to a consensus on it, so they made a pact. And they said, whoever gets to heaven first, make sure you come back and tell the other one so that we know before we get there. And so eventually, Bill bites the big one. He, he goes uh, to heaven, and um, George is missing him. And then one night, George has a dream, and he dreams and sees Bill. And George is so excited. He's like, hey, Bill, you know what I want to know. So is there golf in heaven? And Bill said, well, let me put it to you this way. I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is there is golf in heaven, and it's incredible. The fairways are beautiful. The grass is perfect. You can't even make a divot in the stuff, he said. And there's no more sea, so there's no more water hazards anywhere. And so he said, well, what could possibly be the bad news? And he said, you're scheduled to tee off in the morning. (laughs) Well, I have some more good news and bad news for you. The good news is, is that anyone alive on planet Earth today can go to heaven. The bad news is, surprisingly few choose to. In fact, what we're going to see today is that heaven is not the default destination after death, although sometimes we think it might be. But thankfully, the choice of whether or not we go to heaven is entirely up to you and I. Heaven, as we've seen so far, is an incredible place. It's a place beyond, well, anything that we can fathom. But is hell real or just heaven? I mean, is there a place other than heaven where people can go after death? Or does everyone who's ever lived not have a choice? They have to go to heaven. They have to go to be with God whether they want to or not. The best way, I think, to know that isn't to just look to man's opinions because man has a wide variety of opinions, right? We all do. But instead to actually go to the Bible and see what it is that God shared with us about heaven and hell a long, long time ago that people have studied and come to understand over the centuries. So this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Luke 16. We're just going to kind of focus in on a part of this chapter this morning. And we're going to see a a story about a guy who went to heaven and another guy who went to hell. And the Bible talks a lot, believe it or not, about both of these destinations. So I picked this passage today because it actually talks about both right next to each other. Um, so as we're turning there, let, let, me just, let, let me just share one thing before we get started here this morning, which I think is really important. My goal here today in talking about hell is not to pound the pulpit or anything. In fact, I don't have a pulpit here to pound. And if I did, I wouldn't. I'm not going to try to scare anyone into faith I don't appreciate that any more than you would. My goal here is just to simply be clear. To paint as clear a picture as possible as I can about what the Bible says about both places. About both heaven and hell. So that we are able to make informed decisions. Is that, is that fair? So that's, that's how we're going to approach this this morning. Now I'm going to read this full story to you. As Jesus, as Jesus told it and as he, as he was explaining these two destinations. And then we're going to kind of walk our way back through it. Okay, Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. 
At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, verse 24, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you were in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one could cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Verse 27, Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want, them, I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to anyone who rises from the dead. It's quite a story, isn't it? But it's one that Jesus told to help paint a reality of heaven as well as hell. And there are some key concepts that Jesus was trying to teach in this, pa- in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. But let me just start by saying this. This is a unique uh, story of Jesus in that you know, many of the stories of Jesus are, are parables. And some believe that the, the parables perhaps were just fictitious stories, although we're not for sure because there's no names. It just kind of mentions a man did this or a man did that. But in this story, it's different. In this story, Jesus is mentioning specific names. He's mentioning the names of everyone in the story except for one, the rich man, which he probably is just saying the rich man for the sake of um, confidentiality or something like that. But uh, Jesus told this story for a few reasons, I believe. The first one is this. Worldly success can give a false sense of eternal security. I want to say that again. Sometimes when we look at this passage, we don't pay attention to this part. But we see this in verse 19. Worldly success can give a false sense sometimes in our lives of eternal security. Jesus tells here uh, of this rich guy who goes to hell. And Jesus isn't saying here, let me hear me, Jesus isn't saying here that all rich people go to hell. That's not what he's saying. Though he do, Jesus does make clear at other times that wealth and worldly success had this pull on our souls like nothing else. The story describes here how every day this rich man lived in luxury and it made it very hard for him to consider God. I mean, who needs God when you have just about anything you want? Who needs to think about the things of heaven when the things of earth, the stuff of this earth is all consuming? Why focus on loving God and and loving others when you can spend your energies loving and protecting your stuff? Jesus doesn't say here that the rich man was deliberately cruel to Lazarus. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, it says in verse 21 that this rich man gave Lazarus his leftovers as he kind of laid there in the street in front of his home. What we just see here, though, is that this rich man, he really doesn't love Lazarus. He really didn't care. 
He didn't care about Lazarus. He didn't care about God. He really only cared in this life about himself. And Jesus is teaching here, and this is so important, guys. Jesus is teaching here that we need to hold what we have here in this life very loosely. Because these things that we have in this world, they're only temporary. We can't take them with us when we die. We know that. These temporary nice things can keep us from making the right choice for eternity, which would be tragic. So we see here that worldly success can give us this false sense of eternal security. But we also see in the words of Jesus here this important concept, that adversity and suffering on earth, though it's ugly at times, it's always, always temporary. It's the tiniest of blips in the span of eternity that we live. Now in this story, we see how Lazarus suffered way more than most people do in this world. He was very poor. He was covered in sores. In fact, many of you who are here today, you know people like that. Not necessarily people who are covered with sores, but you know people who just seem to live lives full of suffering. And you just kind of question sometimes, how is that fair that that person goes through what they go through? Now, Lazarus may have thought of his suffering as lasting forever, but the good news was it didn't. Even if it lasted for 50 years, which we're not, we don't know, the story doesn't tell us, even if Lazarus suffered with poverty and these sores for 50 years, that was just a blip in the span of eternity of this man's life. Guys, when we lose track of how incredibly quick and temporary, any suffering that we endure here on earth really is. Everything can get off with our perspective. Our perspective on fairness gets off. Our perspective on the goodness of God gets off. And our perspective on what's really important in this world gets off. When talking to us about adversity, 2 Corinthians says this. It says, we never give up. Though our bodies are dying. In other words, they're hurting. They're falling apart at times. It says, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and what? They won't last very long. That's the hope. That's the encouragement. Yet it says, get this, they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Suffering here on earth is always, always temporary. Sometimes we wish it'd be a little more temporary than it is, but it's always temporary. Suffering after this life, though, is a different story. After this life, suffering for some will be eternal and irreversible. You see, after both of these men died, both of them went to an eternal destination. Yet Jesus says their two destinations were quite different. The Bible describes hell as a place of real suffering, not a place of figurative suffering. It's a place created for demons who choose to reject God, but it's also a pl- become a place for people who choose to reject or f- refuse to surrender to God as well. And it sounds like a pretty unappealing place. It doesn't sound like a place any of us would go to, but you know what? As I read this, all these different accounts in the, in the Scripture about, about hell, what I think about is most unappealing about it. For me, it's not that it's a permanent destination for those who don't follow Jesus, although Revelation 20 says so. It's not even the fire or the evil or the demons. For me, what makes this place so, so unappealing, so awful, 
is that it's totally absent of the presence of God. I mean, think about that. Sometimes we think or feel like God isn't present in our lives. Have you ever felt that way? Like sometimes like, God, I'm praying to you. I'm trying to connect with you and I don't feel you. I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the walls here. Where are you? But here's the thing. None of us have ever once experienced a moment in life totally absent from God's presence like that. None of us. We never have. We think we've, uh, we've experienced a lack of God's presence and maybe we haven't felt God's presence at times as strongly as we would like to, but none of us have ever experienced a complete absence of God's presence. And hell is that. Hell is basically God's staying away from us entirely and there being a complete absence of His presence, of His love, of His grace, of His compassion, of His mercy, all the things that make life worth living are taken away because God isn't present. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a moment because I know as I've gotten into this story, some of you, your minds are going off on some different tangents here. I, I, there, there are some things in this story that I feel like it's really important that we just kind of explain. So uh, some of you may be thinking as I'm talking here, so Dave, I mean, we're looking at heaven and hell here. Where's God in this picture, right? And this, he, is this heaven and hell or is this some other place? Because if, if, it's, if it's heaven and it's hell, then why are they so close to each other? I mean, right? Now, let me explain to you what this, what this is all about. Because there's been some confusion about this. In the days of the Old Testament, before Christ came, the afterlife was very different. The Old Testament says that then, back then, everyone went to the same place. It was a place called Sheol. The Greek translation, is in the, which we see in the New Testament, is the word Hades, which some of us are familiar with, uh, the, familiar with that term. Did you know, by the way, that same language is right here in this story? I mean, look at verse 23. Some of your translations will actually use the word Hades, which was the Hebrew word Sheol. Others of them will just say the place of the dead, which is what Sheol was called. Uh, but if you look at the footnote, even if it says that, it will say in Greek, Hades. Now, the general understanding here is that before Jesus, no one went to heaven after death or at death. Everyone went to one of these two places in Sheol as they died in their sins. Luke 16 says that they're both apart from the presence of God because one is called hell and the other place where Lazarus and Abraham was, was this place that places in Scripture tends to refer to as a place called paradise. But when Jesus, came to the, when Jesus went to the cross, Colossians talks about this, First Peter talks about this, Revelation talks about this. When Jesus went to the cross, it indicates that then Jesus went to Hades. When Jesus died, he descended into Hades to defeat death and its power over mankind, but also to release those people who were in paradise from their, uh, and to be with God in heaven. Revelation 1.18, Jesus' work on the cross gave him the ability to take hold of the keys of death and Hades, it says. Okay, so with that little tangent taken care of here, hopefully now we can get our focus back on this. Let's finish the story. The final thing that I think Jesus was really trying to make clear here is that hell is a place for those who choose to not surrender to God in this life. In verses 27 through 31, Jesus explains how the rich man wanted something supernatural to happen, right? To coerce uh, Abraham, he wanted Abraham to, to, to force Lazarus to go back to earth and appear to all of his family members and to convince them that they needed to repent of their sins and they needed to turn to God, which is something that this rich man had never done in his life. You see, 
the rich man had finally figured it out. That heaven isn't the default destination of people after death. Our sinful choices in this life are our way of rejecting God. And as a result, Matthew 7 tells us that the path to hell is wide. And way more people go down that path than they do the path to heaven. Now, as I share that with you, I know for some of you, this makes you uncomfortable. It's not the types of things you like to think about, right? We love spending a series talking about the realities of heaven. The H-E double hockey sticks place is not something we like to think about, right? But it's here. And it's just as present here in Scripture as heaven is. And God's not playing hard to get here when he's talking about hell. God never expects us, for instance, to work off our sins, right? Thank God he doesn't. God never expects us to do enough good stuff to get into his good graces and to be allowed into his presence. God never even expects us to act religious enough to be in his presence. God simply asks, guys, one thing of us. God asks one thing of us in this life. God asks that you and I make one simple choice in this life. A choice to accept the gift of life that he's given us through Jesus. That's it. To surrender our lives, to yield our lives to Christ. You know, there was a time in my life when I really struggled with this concept of hell, to be honest with you. I did. I really questioned how it could even be a place. But I don't question it anymore. Let me tell you why. For the longest time, I seemed to think that God must be mean or unfair to send people to a place like hell. For there to even be a place like that. How, I would think, how in the world could God create you know, the, us as his children, love us, and then send us to a place like that? But then God showed me his real heart through Scripture. God directed me to places in Scripture like Matthew 18, 14, like John 3, 17, and 2 Peter 3, 9, which all point to the heart of God and how deeply, how deeply he wants each and every one of us in this life to choose to love him. God has never once chosen to send someone to hell. His choice is that no one goes. But God, listen to this, God surrenders that choice to us to make. He doesn't take that choice from us. Now, I know some of you may be saying, well, no one chooses to go to hell. I mean, like, no one here is alive on earth and is thinking, you know what? I think that heaven place sounds really boring. I think I'd rather go to hell. Right? I mean, we don't think that. But here's the thing. Many people on earth today choose to not choose God. They choose to reject God. And hell is a place for people who say, I don't need God, I don't want God, I don't want you or your forgiveness, I want it my way. And God says, okay, it's your choice. I mean, think about it. This is important. Think about this. Why in the world would a loving God force his desires and force himself on someone else. That's not love. Let me tell you what that is. That's rape. That's not love. And that's never been God. God has bound himself. He has bound his desires to honor your choice. He never forces himself on you. He never forces you into his presence, including in heaven, which is a place that is full of his presence. I mean, think about if we reject God here, imagine how it would be to try to reject God in heaven when everything and everywhere is just saturated with the presence of the living God. 
C.S. Lewis, who was a great agnostic uh, from the past, but he came to Christ later in his life. He's the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and other things. He figured this out later on in his life, and this is what he said. He said, what people don't understand about hell is the lock is on the inside of the door. He later said in his book, The Problem of Pain, sin is man saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God's finally saying to man, you may have your wish. It is God's leaving man to himself as man has chosen. You know, there's another guy by the name of Howard Storm who was one of those people like the rich man. He was a person who decided at a very early age to refuse to surrender or to trust in God. In fact, he certainly didn't believe in there was a Jesus or surrender his life to him. This man, Howard Storm, was a famous sculptor, well-known uh, on the East Coast for his works of art. He was a tenured university professor of art at a university in Kentucky. And he was known to say to his seminary students for years, not seminary, his college students for years, there's no such thing as life after death. Only simple-minded people believe in that sort of thing. That's what he said. But then he had this experience, which I'm not going to try to explain to you, but he believes it's very genuine and very real. An experience where he died in the hospital, and he not only experienced heaven, but he says he experienced hell as well. I want to give you just a little piece of his story to think about this morning. Take a look at this. Why don't you take us back to that day? Tell us what happened when your body failed and you died. Okay. June 1st, 1985. Although it was more than 30 years ago, it could have been yesterday. That's the, the thing way that's that wild. That's what everybody says. Is yeah. The memory's not here. It's, yeah. It's my, like, I mean, sometimes I, can't, sometimes I can't remember my wife's name, which she doesn't like, but I can remember <laughs> this. <laughs> you know? But this is clear as yesterday? Yes. And um, I think that I was as unpredisposed to have this experience as anyone could be. I was a committed, confirmed intellectual atheist and had been ever since my adolescence. And all of my friends were. I had, at 11 o'clock in the morning, a perforation of the small stomach, which meant that um, somewhere between a half and three-quarter of an inch rupture in um, my digestive system, like right inside of there, burst open, and the hydrochloric acid in the digestive juices started to migrate into my abdominal cavity. So what I was doing was I was digesting myself on the inside. What did you think would happen when you died? I didn't think. I knew. I was a rational, well-educated man, and all of my friends were PhDs in their different fields. And anybody that didn't know what we knew was ignorant. What we knew, I mean, I'm just trying to I mean, this is what we really think, and I know they still think. Um, when you die, it's over. The end, nothing, you know. But it's, it's hard to describe unless if, if any of you, you've been there in a place of complete hopelessness. Um, in that place, my memory remembered my childhood and, you know, this um, childlike, simple trust and belief in a guy by the name of Jesus and I I had nothing except that little memory and I remembered 
believing that and feeling that, and I, and I, you, and I you, went you, for it. You wrote in your book that you just remembered three lines of a song. Jesus loves me, la, la, la. That was it. Some woman gave up her Sunday morning to teach Sunday school. And I don't remember her, but when I go to heaven, I'm going I'm to kiss her hands and thank her. And I never gave that gift to my kids. I raised my kids as atheists. And they bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I've got to suffer with that for the rest of my life. When I felt that Jesus loves me, I called out in that darkness, Jesus, please save me. I didn't mean to sound like a Baptist, but I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and as we're rapidly going away from darkness into a world of magnificent light, which is like, oh my, you know, <laughs> I've been the dope of the universe because we're going to where God is. This is God's house now we're going to. And you can see it far yeah, off, off in the, off and you're going distance. there. And I thought to myself, he's made a terrible mistake. I'm filth, and I belong back down there. And we stopped our progress towards what I like to refer to as home, because that's where we all belong. Mm. It's our, our real home. This is not home. Big mistake, thinking this is home. Mm. This is just a temporary experience. And he spoke, and he said, we don't make mistakes. You do belong here. And I thought... How'd you know I thought that? Did you hear my thoughts? <laughs> and he, like, I know everything you've ever thought. And I thought, oh, no, this is really bad. <laughs> and so he sent you back. Yeah, to my great disappointment. Um, and so here I am, and I come back into this world, and it's like, okay, how do you do this? How do you follow Jesus? How do you do this thing? And... One of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about the church is because that's... I, I did read the Bible avidly, but um, I was misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and driving people away from God. The church experience taught me how to... the practical application of Christianity as opposed to some kind of, you know, nutty, you know, individualistic interpretation. Well, and I know that following Jesus has cost, earthly-wise, it's cost you pretty much everything, hasn't it? Yeah. I um, don't think I want to go there right now because it hurts too much, but I've also gained everything, too. You know, it's, it's so weird. The more you let go, the more God gives you in a different way. Yeah. And I've had a lot of trouble believing that and yeah. trusting it and it, God has proved it over and over and over again in my life yeah. let go of this and you'll be surprised what I'm going to give you he's so right heaven is supposed to be our home but it isn't the default destination that we all land on it can be the choice is totally up to us that decision is one that we make through the course of our lives each one of us God in his great love for us has made it as easy as possible for us 
to, to go to be with him in heaven. We don't have to work our way there. We don't have to do certain things. We don't have to check off a list. All we have to do is accept the gift that he's given us. That's all he asks, to accept his love and his grace in our lives. But you know what else that I think, I, as I saw his story that was so meaningful to me, was how, it's, how important it is for each one of us who do know Christ, who have a relationship with Christ, to share that with others. Because if we hold in this love that God has for the entire world, if we just keep it to ourselves, then we're holding back a tremendous gift from those that are around us. There's so many ways that we can do that. I mean, what, what really struck me with his story is how this one lady many, many years ago in a Sunday school class made such an impact on his life. And even though he didn't follow in that path in his life, it was there. That seed was planted and it wasn't going anywhere. And even now, right now, as we're in this room, there are some adults who are pouring into the lives of our kids and are sharing Jesus with them. And thank God for them. And I want to encourage you, if God ever needles your heart to try to go into there and to be involved in children's ministry, to help out, even if it's on the sidelines, we'd love for you to be a part of that blessing. The same is true on Sunday nights with our student ministry on the blender. We have many people who have chosen on a regular basis to give up their Sunday nights to invest in the lives of our students because they matter. And I want to thank you if, you're, if you have been one of those who have served in children's ministry or student ministry, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. What you do matters. But also, I want to remind each one of us that it's not just what we do in this building that matters. It's what we do outside this building that matters. It's the conversations we have in the grocery store, on the golf course, uh, hiking down the trail, wherever it is that we are. It's those conversations that we have. It's the people that God puts in our path and God needles our heart and says, Dave, pay attention, or Sue, or Teresa, pay attention to who's around you. That God opens these doors that we couldn't have asked for if we wanted them. And it's our responsibility to just be sensitive to God's Spirit each and every day and say, God, who do you want me to be Jesus in front of today? Who do you want me to share your love with today? And to be courageous enough to do so. Even if it may feel a little uncomfortable to you, what you're doing is you're planting seeds that will last in eternity. In the end, what's going to be found to be most important in this world is not the wealth. It's not the stuff. It's not the awards, the accolades, the attaboys, the accomplishments. One day we're going to care less about all that stuff. But what will matter are the relationships the relationships we have with our God and the relationships we have with others, the love that we have shown toward God and toward others. So may we be a people of grace who love so stinking well that we point everyone that we come in contact with toward their eternal home. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for helping me share this message today. Lord, this was the one message in the series I was kind of knowing I needed to touch on. You were telling me that I needed to deal with, but Lord, honestly, I didn't want to deal with it. I'd rather just focus on heaven and not the hell place. But Lord, in your mercy and in your grace, you not only asked me to present this word, and I know that, but Lord, you presented it in your word, in scripture, to make sure that it was really, really clear that no one could 
to, could leave this earth saying, well, I didn't know. But Lord, that we all have an opportunity of understanding because you've told us that there is a choice. This earth, this place that we're in is just a temporary place, a place where we make one really important decision in this life. And that is to choose to love you or not. To choose to accept your gift of grace or to choose to run away from it. God, I pray for every person in this room that we would all be people who accept that gift, who embrace your love, even though sometimes we don't understand it, we don't get it. (laughs) We accept it. If you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Christ, but for whatever reason, you picked hell week. <laughs> For whatever reason, you picked that week to come here this morning. I don't think that's an accident. I believe God wanted you to hear this difficult message this morning so that you too would be faced once again with this decision. Do I choose to embrace the living God or not? Do I choose to accept Jesus or do I choose to reject Him? I pray that you won't reject Him. And if you would like to accept him into your heart today, I don't want to call you on the spot. I I hate that kind of thing. But what I do want to do is give you an opportunity to make your heart right with God right now. To say yes to Jesus in your heart. Because God knows. God's listening. Would you pray, if that's you this morning, whether you've never accepted Christ, or maybe you did a long, long time ago as Howard Storm did as a little kid, but walked away from it. I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to him again today. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we confess that we need you. Lord, I thank you for presenting the realities of life as they are. Not just on this side, but on the other side as well. Lord, thank you for not sugarcoating things. Thank you for not trying to make things better than they really are, but presenting them as they really are. Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room. And Lord, for those of us who are here today who would say, Jesus, I place my heart in your hands. Lord, we ask that you would accept us by your grace. As we we confess that you are our Savior and Lord who died on a cross so that we could live. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit and begin to change us from the inside out. Make us into the men and women of God that you've wanted us to be all along, but that we've somehow missed. Help us to live this adventure called life to its fullest, to embrace it with everything that comes with it. In Jesus' name, amen.